0: Well, welcome again uh, to Worship. Find, if you have your copy of Scripture, First Samuel. And we're going to read that text, not yet, but in a few minutes. So find First Samuel. Keep your Bibles open. If you don't have your copy of Scripture, it'll be on the screen. While you're finding that, let me just make a quick announcement about Easter. Of course, that's coming up in two weeks. And on Easter, we're going to do something unusual in that we're going to have three services. We're going to have two first fellowships. And uh, so first fellowship. B, will follow at 9.30 right in this room. Same, uh, same service, we'll just, we'll just offer that uh, twice, so at 8.15 and at 9.30 in this room, and then uh, as always at 10.30 in the, in the sanctuary. Uh, <clears throat> this is an unusual day for a number of reasons, one being that we're not, we're not live streaming, so people who are watching from home or wherever they, they are uh, this morning are seeing uh, t- this week's TV church. We're not broadcasting live in the sanctuary. As it turns out, we were preempted by uh, March Madness, uh, and, and yet for me, it was, it was perfect timing because I wanted today to be uh, just us. Uh, we're going to have a link to this message on Tuesday, but I wanted to have a, a family conversation. Counting my time as interim preacher, I've preached almost 300 sermons here. My, my best sermons I preached during the interim, I've told you that, and then I had to kind <clears> of. <throat> and so I wanted, but I wanted today uh, to be a family chat. Now, if you're new, I am delighted you're here and you are welcome to the family table. Just, just pull up a chair. I remember right where I was when um, Judd Reasons, the executive pastor here, uh, called me. It was late spring of 2014. I was driving through the Virginia countryside uh, to a Baptist camp. Uh, Judd said David Hull had retired, I knew that, and said that uh, he'd been instructed to call around to several people to see who might be available and uh, want to come maybe and be the interim preacher. I tried not to sound too eager when I said, uh, I said yeah, I'd, I'd be delighted. Well, um, to make one of my favorite stories short, um, on August the 3rd of 2014, I preached my first sermon here as the interim preacher. And after 14 months of popping in, popping off, and popping out, in October of 15, I went back to Richmond to be the interim preacher at um, Gayton Baptist Church. And then, of course, five years ago, became uh, the pastor of the best church I know. And I've never said anything with more sincerity than the sincerity with which I say I became pastor of the best church I know. When the interim began uh, in August of 2014, two big questions were hanging in the air. Uh, One question was, do we have a a viable long-term future? Uh, The second question was, can we pull off being a big tent church? A third question would arise several months into the interim, and that question is, can we have a healthy conversation about same-sex relationships? Because all three of those questions are so important, <clears throat> I I'm going to address them one by one. The first question is, uh, do we have a viable long-term future? I, I told you during the interim about an email that I got from a member of our church uh, asking, of course, at that point I was the interim, I was just preparing you for the next pastor but she said to me and this is a deeply devoted member of our church who asked me simply are we going to make it now it was the church was not on life support i don't want to be melodramatic it was a long term question i answered positively i said i think the church is going to do well i'd said though i think the next decade is going to be critical I believe I said the church, this church could either decline precipitously or grow surprisingly. And I said, I think the next 10 years w- will be very telling. I said, um, there, are, there are two things in particular that are, are really important for the future of this church one is the marks on the mailbox. And the second is whether we will engage young adults. First, the mailbox. Some of you will remember this story. Jimmy Carter talked about growing up in Plains, and he said that when he was growing up in Plains, during the Depression, there, was, there were these people often called hobos or tramps, drifters, who would come through, and and they'd come to the back door, and they'd offer to cut wood or do yard work in exchange for some leftover fried chicken or a sandwich. And one day these drifters, some of them were sitting at the table when Miss Lillian, Jimmy Carter's mom, said, if you don't mind me asking, I've noticed that that several of you come and stop here, but I don't see you stopping at other houses in the neighborhood. Why is that? And this drifter said to Miss Lillian, you would never know it. But there are marks on your mailbox. These signs that we have uh, along the way at every house that say uh, we are either welcome here or we're not. And the marks on your mailbox say that we are welcome here. And I said to you, now remember I was, I was just getting you ready for the next pastor. Pastor. And I said, I'm going to say something to you because I love you. But I've been asking around, and the marks uh, on your mailbox do not say that everybody is welcome here. And I said, I think it's unfair. I think it's a a bad perception. I think it's a stigma. And and almost every first church struggles to overcome that stigma. But I said, For your church to have a viable future, you're going to have to change the marks on the mailbox so that people know that everybody is welcome here regardless of the hue of their skin or the accent of their tongue, regardless of their educational level or their rung on the socioeconomic ladder, regardless of what they did last year or what they did last night. And the encouraging thing was you didn't gasp, you didn't groan, you didn't tell me to go back to Richmond. You had that look like, yeah, we know that. On your faces. And that was really encouraging to me. In fact, a member of this church who's known me a long time was watching on television and called me and said, How'd, they, how'd that go? I said, Man, they, they really responded well. I took that as a great encouragement. And quite frankly, I think we are changing the, the marks on the mailbox. The second thing was about young adults i said of course the long term future of the church will depend on on whether young adults choose to call fbc huntsville home and i said that's particularly important given the fact that a growing number of young adults do not call any church home and then i became the pastor and uh, i had been here only a few weeks when i invited you to a, a brainstorming session i said anybody that will come tonight we're going to gather in the community room and we're just going to brainstorm about how we engage young adults. Well, I booked the community room, but so many people showed up, we had to move to the student center. And the beautiful thing about that was that most people there were not young adults. There were a lot of people there older than I am. And so we, we started getting serious about young adults. We established a position, ministered to young adults, and called John Lemons. So this, a couple of weeks ago, I asked Lisa Wilson, our assistant, to go into the records to see how how well we're doing in terms of members, young adults. I said, start at September the 1st, 2016. About four and a half years ago, I said, that's when we kind of started getting serious about young adults, September 1st, uh, 2016. Since September 1st, 2016, 132 people who were ages 22 to 39, have joined First Baptist Church. That's joined. There are lots of others who have not yet joined, but they're plugged in and involved. But 132 young adults in four and a half years, and one of those years was during a pandemic. So I think God is blessing our efforts. Now, I can take no credit for that because the truth is I spend far, far, far more time with senior adults than I do with young adults. It's just the nature of my role between home visits and nursing home visits and uh, calls and letters during of course that was during COVID and calls and letters during COVID and hospital visits. I spend a lot more time with experienced adults than with young adults. But I do think that, that people of all ages do understand my commitment to people of of all ages. So the first question hanging there was, are we going to make it? I said the next 10 years are important, but yes, I think you will. The second question was, can we pull off being a big tent church? I said, as your interim preacher, this church is like a beautiful mosaic, a family made up of people who do not see everything the same. And I said, it is particularly challenging to pull that off it's hard i said to be a big tent church. And i told you a story at Bon Air Baptist where i'd been pastor 12 years in Richmond, also a big tent church. I said one day a couple came into my office, sat down on the couch, and they said, "Travis, we're not mad, and we love Bon Air, but we're we're leaving Bon Air because we think this church emphasizes women in ministry too much." And that's not where we are, and so they said we're leaving, and they and they were polite. They did leave and go to a more conservative church. Six weeks later, no exaggeration, same couch, different couple. Said, Travis, we're not mad we love Bonaire, but we're leaving Bonaire. Because we think Bonaire, as well as some other most other Baptist churches, are too restrictive, too traditional when it comes to same-sex relationships. And so we're leaving. And they were polite, but they left and went to a more uh, progressive or liberal church. And I told you, don't forget that story. And I would say it again today. Don't forget that story. That's one of the the realities of being a big tent church. Is that we are always vulnerable uh, to losing people at the left side of the tent and losing people at the right side of a tent over completely different matters or issues or topics. But there's also a big upside to being... A big tent church, and that is we attract people from who come in from the left door and, and, and through the right door and through the middle door. And the really good news is that in these five years, although we have lost a few folks out of each end of the tent, lots more have come through the left door, the right door, and the middle door. It is a beautiful thing to be a big tent church, albeit. A challenging thing. The third question that I want to talk about, it arose after I'd been here a while. While I, while I was the interim, the, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court decided to, uh, the, well, they made, they made same-sex marriages legal. And so this church began to ask, should we talk about that? And should we issue some sort of response to that? You decided to wait until the pastor So I knew arriving that that was on my desk. As soon as I arrived, I knew that together we would tackle one of the most divisive topics in the history of the Christian church. I arrived in March. In May, we began a thorough five-month-long church-wide conversation. And then in September, we, um, we we voted on affirmed a statement. It said, essentially, and the statement's on the website if you want to see it. Essentially, we welcome everybody, honestly. But we don't affirm or bless same-sex intimate relationships. There were some folks who disagreed with that statement. Some I knew well, considered then and consider still friends, who disagreed to the point that they felt they couldn't stay. And we lost some, some good folks. Who interpret the Bible differently? There were others who disagreed and stayed, and there are lots of people actively serving our church today, who, who did not agree with the statement or that we, even that we fact that we took a statement or made a statement, but have remained and served, and for that I am deeply grateful. Well, we took a collective breath and then began a a three-and-a-half-year experience that was something like an extended honeymoon. It wasn't all giggles. I preached the funerals of, and I stood with the loved ones of, people that had become my friends, pillars of the church, encouragers, people that I loved. And Those days were hard and remain hard but there have been lots of good days uh, too I've dedicated babies and I've married lovebirds I've been on the golf course with some of you I've uh, I've been to Israel with some of you I've sung on the living Christmas tree with some of you we have started fresh expressions or new forms of church and even a new completely new tv program tv tennessee valley church The Good Times came to a culmination in March, one year ago with our Generations campaign. But that didn't come easily. You might remember that in 2019, our trustees came to the church with a plan to to provide for us a premier children's area. And that plan came with a bunch of wows and a few oh mys. The wows were about the indoor play place and, and uh, a gathering, a worship space just for kids and other things. The Omai's oh were primarily centered around the chapel. Our present chapel holds lots of memories for lots of people. Lots of us have mourned loss and celebrated life in that sacred space. And the trustee's plan was to use that chapel as part of the new renovation, as part of the new children's area. Now, we were going to build a new chapel, they said, but it wouldn't be the same chapel, it wouldn't be the same space. And there were lots of people who really were saddened by the loss of such holy space. We voted on a capital campaign to fund this building, and it came in at an 84% yes vote. And lots of folks said, great, we've made decisions and moved forward with uh, lesser votes than that. But I believe in my heart we could do better. So I met with the trustees and they agreed. And came back to the church that provided premier children's space and left the chapel where it was. And then on March 8th, one year ago, we had our big announcement of, uh, of our pledges. Our goal was $7 million and we knew that was a stretch. But I stood up here and on the platform in the sanctuary with a bunch of wonderful kids and we revealed that together we had pledged not $7 million, but more than $8.3 million. It was unparalleled, unprecedented. It was the peak, the pinnacle. It was Shangri-La, utopia, bliss, the promised land. One year ago today, things could not have gotten better. And then, and then the honeymoon ended. I didn't say our love ended or that the marriage ended, but our honeymoon as pastor and people ended a year ago. Now Carrie and I have been married for 37 years and we love each other more now than we did 37 years ago. But our honeymoon was just five days and four nights in Hilton Head. So when I say the honeymoon ended, that's not necessarily bad news because marriages become good marriages after the honeymoon. Bill Wilson was the the consultant during um, the interim. Bill leads the Center for Healthy Churches, and um, he helped coach this pastor search committee and did some visioning with the entire congregation. And uh, Bill's a friend of mine. He preached on the Sunday before I began as pastor. So a year ago, last Sunday, Bill Wilson stood here and he said to you the same thing he says to every church who has just called a pastor. Bill said, eventually, Travis will disappoint you. And Bill was, Bill was right. In this past year, I've disappointed some of you. First, there was COVID-19. And do we stay open? Do we close? Do we wear masks? Do we sing? And although most folks have been really supportive, as you might imagine, we've done too much for some and not enough uh, for others. And I, I haven't been told directly, I understand that some, some folks are really upset about that. So, when it came to COVID-19 and how do we handle it, I had a great Team of advisors, including a couple of wonderful physicians. And yet, and yet, I know that, given, you know, our attempt to do the right thing with COVID nineteen, I know I've disappointed uh, some of you. And then there was the race conversation. Last spring, the violent deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd thrust our nation into a deep racial divide. I stepped into the gap. I decided I could not address that, so I stepped into the gap and I tried uh, to help. I felt I already understood the primary white perspective, but I wanted to understand more uh, the black perspective. So I got involved with a group of white and black pastors uh, in the region. I preached about race on June the 7th and then. It was part of my sermon on July the 12th. I wrote this little booklet and I presented it uh, one night and it's still there, still lying around, copies around the building if you want to see it. Uh, a book, booklet titled Acknowledgement, Acknowledgement. I acknowledge some things like racism that remains in our country and lament. I lamented the residue of racism that remains in my heart and the part, the unmistakable part, that the white church has played in the history of our country in perpetuating prejudice, and I talked about action. I said, here's some things that we can that we can do. I received more enthusiastic support for my work on race than I ever would have imagined. But some people, including some who had been delighted with my position on sexuality, were disappointed with me regarding my work and my words on race. Some trusted my heart, but perceived me as naive. Either way, agree or disagree. Disappointed with me or not disappointed with me, I, it could not have been a surprise. When I was your interim preacher, I spoke with conviction and clarity about race, about unity, and about what I understand to be fairness. So when I, when I said what I said and did what I did, it might have been disappointing but it could not have been a surprise. You knew who I was when I came. And by the way, as of this past Friday, I'm now part of a conversation which I hope will result in some action region-wide to try to address and prevent acts of hate toward Asian people. I'm committed to the unity and fairness of people no matter the hue of their skin or the accent of their tongue. Well, tensions died down after that. Some people were still disappointed, but tensions died down. And then came January 6th when some people charged the Capitol in D.C. and some of them were carrying signs and banners and crosses, signs and banners that read Jesus and crosses. And... um, and on social media and and, and on two local news programs and in an interview with AL.com and in a private conversation. I asked our representative to assume responsibility for what I thought were inappropriate remarks in the rally that morning. I said, you have an opportunity uh, to, to help heal our nation. And because of what I did, some people again were disappointed in me. You know how much I love refereeing high school football. And that during the fall, several nights a week and every Friday night, I'm on the field. I know there are lots of referees in the stands too. But two decades ago, I decided I, I didn't want to be in the stands anymore. I wanted to be on the field. And that, has, that applies to more than football. It applies to the important issues of our day. And any commentary I offer will be from the field, not from the press box, not from some cushy seats in the boosters section, but I will be on the field. When, quite frankly, there are people from the stands in the press box saying how they'd coach differently Or the players need to play better or the officials need eye surgery which I had three weeks ago (laughs) but I'm going to be on the field I have acknowledged that I will get some things right in my effort I will get some things wrong in my effort to do right but I will not do nothing When my clear convictions about biblical truth intersect with my opportunities to make a difference, I will be in the game. And you will decide whether my words and my actions have merit and whether you will join me on the field. This past Friday, reading um, a book about American history, I came across a quote. Carrie, would you bring me my water? Hand me my water. i just come get it. Don't worry about it. I'll I'll, come here. (laughs) On Friday, I was um, reading a book on American history. And I found a quote from Senator Daniel Webster from 1830. I want you to listen carefully to what he said. He said, when a ship has been tossed around in a seemingly interminable storm, when the rains have pummeled the vessel and the, the winds and the waves have tossed the vessel and the skies have been dark for days on end, when the winds begin, and he said this much more eloquently than I am, but when the winds die down and the sun begins to peak from behind the clouds, the crew come out of their cabins And they get their instruments out, their sextants, their compasses. And they remember the course they were on when the storm blew in. And they make a beeline for that course. A year ago, the perfect storms began to blow. For us. And it's been a hard year. For a year, we've been kind of tossed around by the winds and the waves. And there have been days when the, when the sky was black. But it feels to me like the, the storms are beginning to dissipate a bit, the winds are calming a bit, the sun has begun to peek from behind the clouds, lots of us are getting our vaccinations, every week there are more of us present, and two, more importantly than that, two weeks from today we will celebrate the most hope-filled day of the year. We will celebrate Easter. Samuel Webster said, after the long storm, the crew will check their latitude and their longitude. They will remember where they were headed and they'll head back there. So I say, let's check our latitude and our longitude. And let's remember the course that we were on. Remember a year ago and the direction we were headed and the peak and the pinnacle, the utopia, the promised land, the, the bliss. I'm not saying we can recapture it, but we can remember the course that we were on and head back to that course better and stronger and more educated about the world and each other than we were before. We are a people called together five years ago for purposes bigger than any one of us. That our world and especially our corner of it would look more like the kingdom of God, more like he would want it to look. That generations to come will face life in an increasingly complex world with a strong First Baptist Church to support them. That all of the people of North Alabama who are to quote Ephesians 2.12 without hope and without God in the world will have every good chance to know and follow Jesus. That you and I will leave a legacy. That you and I will leave a legacy. That legacy being this church. A church that will be faithful to both biblical truth and amazing grace. Even when all of us are gone. Which brings us to our text first Samuel 7 12 through 14 Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen he named it Ebenezer saying thus far the Lord has helped us So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory throughout Samuel's lifetime the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines the towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of, of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. It had been 300 years since that, the exodus, that miraculous escape from enslavement in Egypt. For three centuries, Israel had had its ups and downs, its victories and its defeats. But here they were, rescued again from their enemies. And Samuel said, let's remember who brought us here. We sing that hymn, here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I am come. The Ebenezer stone says, when times are hard, we will choose to be grateful. When times are good, we will choose to be humble. And this is my Ebenezer stone. I would raise it, but it's kind of (laughs) heavy. We're going to put this um, out in the yard somewhere. And it's not going to have my name on it, but it's going to have that verse on it. And we're going to remember. At least I am. That when times are hard, we will choose to be grateful. When times are good we will choose to be humble. I know how many creative, faithful people have worked hard for the success of this church. And I know this church can plan the best plans and program the best programs and organize the best organization and build the best buildings. But I also know that if we ever make an eternal difference, it will be because the creator of the universe has blessed us. So uh, I'm grateful for us, and I'm grateful for those who went before us. But today, it is to the king of the universe and the undisputed lord of this church That I raised my Ebenezer. After all, we wouldn't be here without him.